0: Today's scripture is John chapter 19, verses 1 through 27. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, behold, the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, we have a law. And according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and an Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, behold your king, They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated.
1: Good morning, everybody. Am I on here? All right. Uh, good to see you all this morning. Uh, thank you so much, Marielle, for reading that text. Uh, as you noticed, it was it was a long one. Um, I considered trimming it down, but even though it felt like an eternity standing there, probably it was actually only about four minutes. Um, and I watch shows that are a lot longer than four minutes, and it captures my attention. So, um, my name is Keith. I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption Church, and I can say with confidence that I really love movies. I know we're in the day and age of Netflix and streaming shows, but there's something really magical, magical about watching movies, especially uh, when I was in high school and college, there was a movie that I loved, a movie called The Matrix. <laughs> yeah, you laugh. Come on. It was a good movie. I mean, I'm not talking about the sequels, Jenny. I'm talking about the original Matrix. It was a good movie. Um, and one of the things that captured my attention about The Matrix uh, was that it had this, uh, this theme. If you don't know the movie, what happens basically is that human beings are trapped in this computer simulation. And at some point in the, in the narrative, what happens is a guy named Neo, Thomas Anderson, uh, realizes that he's not in the real world, that he's in a, a computer simulation. He comes out, he goes into the real world, and then he kind of has to go through this hero's journey, this hero's story arc, to figure out, okay, who is he ultimately loyal to? There's this, there's this uh, empire, you could say, this matrix empire, this computer simulation that's run by these other forces that are at work, um, run to use him, and they're all about pleasure and comfort and power. And then he's in this other world, this kind of cold, dark reality of the real world, and he has to figure out, okay, am I loyal to this world, to the real world, the real kingdom, or am I loyal to this other empire? And in the end, what he decides is he's so loyal to the real world that he will lay down his life to save it. He's so loyal to friends and human beings in the real kingdom that he's willing to give up everything in order to save it. And he dies. Sorry if you haven't seen the movie, it's been like 22 years. So <laughs> um, He dies and he comes back to life uh, through his actions. But there's another character. There's another character who's presented with a very similar choice in this movie. There's a guy named Cipher. And Cypher's given the choice. He's in the real world, but he's given the choice to go back into the Matrix. And instead of saving his friends, he sells out his friends. (laughs) He gives them up. I know, it's a very sad part of the movie. People die in it. Um, So Cypher, instead of saving his friends, he sells out his friends because he loves the old empire so much. He loves the empire of pleasure and comfort and ignorance and bliss. He would rather be put back in. And there's something that, when we see that in a movie, when we see that in people, people who are willing to save their own skin, to sell out their friends to save their own skin, there's something that goes, ugh, like, that's slimy, and it's nasty, it's gross. Like, we look at that character and we say, that's the most cowardly, evil thing that somebody could do. And yet, I find myself more often acting like Cypher than like Neo. I find myself much more often loyal to an empire uh, that promises comfort and pleasure than I find myself loyal to the real empire, the real kingdom, the kingdom of God. It's uncomfortable to think about, but we are like Cypher. There's a deep-seated loyalty to an empire that promises comfort, protection, pleasure, and prosperity. We see this every day in our choices. We usually don't have the choice of save the world or save ourselves. That's a comic book decision, right? But we do have choices. Choices about our never-ending desire to have more. More money, better technology, more stuff, more gourmet food, better experiences, sexual gratification, power, authority, acknowledgement from our peers. And the funny thing is that this is what the empire promises us. If we get these things, we'll have the good life. But once we get them, what happens? Our thirst increases. We want more, we want better, we want it now. And it begs the question, if we keep chasing after these same things and getting them and it leads us to want more and more and more, are we trapped? Are we like the people in the matrix? Is there a way out into the real kingdom? There's good news this morning, (laughs) there is another kingdom. There is another kingdom, and there is another king. And this kingdom and this king demands our loyalty. He demands our allegiance. And he maps out a road for us that's not marked by self-gratification, but it's marked by self-sacrifice. It's not marked by acquiring new and more and better stuff, but by acquiring a new family. So here's what I hope to do this morning. We're in the, uh, the text. This morning is John 19, as you heard where we're going to see a man named Pilate, and he's confronted with a very similar decision to cipher. He has to choose between two empires. Where is his allegiance? Who is he loyal to? And I hope and I pray that this morning we would walk away from this text recognizing where we give our allegiance away to the empire of this world and that we're called to a greater and a deeper commitment to King Jesus and to his family. So let's pray, and then we'll jump into the text. Lord Jesus, um, this is your word. This is the word of the Lord as we come to this text. We're reminded um, that these are your actions, your words, and you are speaking to us today just as you were speaking to this original audience, just as you were speaking to Pilate. And so we invite you now, Lord Jesus, that just like you have a robe put on you in this text that you would put this text on you like a robe, that you would meet us here, that you would clothe yourself in this text so that we can hear from you, we can see you, we can know what you're like, and we would be drawn to a greater allegiance and a greater loyalty to you, King Jesus. Uh, Would you do that this morning? In your name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, we are in the book of John. Um, If you don't have a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand, and one of our ushers will bring a copy of God's word to you, if you don't own a copy of God's word, uh, go ahead and keep this one. It is our gift to you. Y también uh, tenemos las uh, Biblias en español. Si necesita una copia de la palabra de Dios, um, eso es nuestro regalito para ti. Um, we're in John 19. And uh, if you're just catching up, if this is your first time here this morning, welcome. So glad that you're you're here. Uh, I'll catch you up a little bit. John is an account of Jesus and all the things that he said and did, these interactions that he had, but it is not a biography in the modern sense. So uh, it is edited for a specific purpose, and the purpose that John tells us why he wrote this book is that we would know that Jesus is the Christ, that is, that he is the king the king that was promised to Israel, the long-awaited king who would come and rescue and restore Israel and the whole creation, that we would know that deeply in our bones. We would know Jesus is king. And secondly, he wrote this book so that we would believe in him, and by believing in him, we would have life in his name. That's John chapter 20, verse 31. He spells it out specifically for us what the purpose of the book is. And we are deep into the book of John. We have been in it since August of 2020, so what is that, like 18 months that we've been in the book of John on and off? Um, And we are now closing, we're very, very close to the end of the book. We're in chapter 19, which is in something called the Passion Narrative. Now, the Passion Narrative begins with Jesus's arrest. He's arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's taken to trial by religious leaders. (laughs) They want to kill him. Um, They can't. They don't have the authority to do so, so they bring him to the Roman governor, a man named Pilate, And then he sees, Pilate sees that Jesus is innocent and he tries to let Jesus walk. He says, okay, you can, can, uh, this guy who's innocent can go free or this guy who's a murderer can go free. Which one do you want? And they're like, we want the murderer to go free. They want to kill Jesus. The people want blood. And so Pilate now is in a position where he's confronted with three big questions. Do I preserve myself or do I sacrifice myself? Am I loyal to Caesar or am I loyal to Jesus? Do I want more stuff or more family? So those are the questions, and we're going to go through these as we go through the text. First of all, self-preservation or self-sacrifice? This is the first question confronting Pilate. Look with me, if you would, at verse uh, 1 through 11. I'll probably point out some and read some specifically and then summarize other things just for the sake of time. But uh, It says this, Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And then what happens next is that the soldiers... In an effort to mock Jesus, twist together a crown of thorns, slam it on his head, uh, and then they put a robe around his shoulders, and then they take turns slapping him in the face and saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Now, the purpose of this is that Pilate is trying to trot Jesus out in front of the crowds and say, look how ridiculous this whole thing is. Look, this guy, this innocent man who's claiming to be king, this is the guy you want blood from? Here, does that appease you? Does that satisfy your bloodlust?" So they put, he brings him back out, and he says, Behold the man. But that does not satisfy the bloodlust of the people. What do they do? In verse 6, the chief priests and the officers saw him, and they cried out, Crucify him. Crucify him. Now, it begs the question, and I think if you're reading this text, it should be a little confusing. Why do they want to kill Jesus so badly? Why, did, why are they... They've given been given so many opportunities to get out of this, but they want to murder Jesus. There's a number of reasons. Um, the religious leaders, first of all, want to kill Jesus because he's really messing with their power. He's been talking about the law in a new way, and that's kind of their domain. He's been talking about the t- the temple in a new way, and that's kind of where their authority lies. Secondly, He's been stirring up these huge crowds, followers of 5,000 people, right? And it might threaten further Roman intervention if that is perceived as a threat in some way. Maybe that's a rebellion or an uprising or something. And so they're worried, right? Like the Romans might come and try and squash this rebellion. And if they come, there's further intervention, further intervention in our nation. It could cause violence and bloodshed from this empire that's ruling over us. So they care about their authority. They care about national security, you could say. And thirdly, they really want to kill Jesus because he has made the implicit and explicit claim that he is divine, that he himself is God. Look what they say in verse 7. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. They want to kill him for blasphemy. That's the claim that you are God or that you are divine when you're not. So they're ready to murder Jesus. But why can't Pilate just shake it off? Why can't he just shrug this thing off and say like, whatever, it doesn't matter. You guys do you. I'm gonna let this innocent man go free. He's kind of trapped here by some political pressures at work, right? First of all, there's some very strong political pressures coming from the religious leaders. But also, if he just shrugs it off, there might be some kind of uprising. There might be some kind of riot or rebellion. And how does that look when you're the governor in charge of this state? To Caesar, it looks like Pilate doesn't have this thing under control, right? If he doesn't have things under control, then we're going to recall him. If we fire him, usually what that means is you lose your life too. In fact, tradition shows that within a decade, that's exactly what happened to Pilate. He was recalled back to Rome And he died. Either they told him to kill himself or he killed himself. But there were consequences for what he did. And the consequences from the Caesar was death. And so Pilate is in this position. Does he kill an innocent man to save his own skin? Or does he let an innocent man go free, knowing it will cost him his life? Man. The political pressure is here are forcing him into making a decision that he does not want to make. I think there's a show um, that, again, I'm not endorsing this show, but there's a show called House of Cards. And in every turn, the main character in House of Cards is making decisions that ultimately seem like political decisions, but ultimately they're about self-preservation. He wants to save his own skin, and that is the position that Pilate is in. But there's something deeper at work. Um, If you look with me at verse 12, we're going to keep moving through the text. Pilate tries to release him, but the Jews cry out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So now we've kind of just laid the naked truth out there, right? This is more than just self-preservation versus self-sacrifice. The reality is these people are calling into question Pilate's loyalty to Caesar himself, right? This is a political decision he needs to make. Are you loyal to the king, Caesar, or are you letting this man go? By letting him go, you're saying that he is actually the king. So which king is it, Pilate? That's what he's got to decide here. Um, And so Pilate, hearing these words, he goes out and he sits down on the judgment seat, but it's kind of ambiguous in the original language. Who's sitting on the judgment seat? Isn't that interesting? Is it Jesus? Or is it Pilate who's sitting on the judgment seat? At a place called the Stone Pavement or Gabbatha. Now, it's the day of preparation of the Passover. It's the sixth hour. And, and then he says this uh, to the Jews, Behold your king. Now, there's something really interesting that John wants us to see here in this section. Everything here, the details, um, don't tell us anything about time until right here. And he tells us that it's the day of preparation for the Passover, That's a very important detail, because what John is trying to do is remind us of Israel's story. Now, the Passover was a festival, a feast to remember a very specific event in Israel's history, the Exodus event. That's when God redeemed his people out of slavery to another empire, to Egypt. He brought them out of that empire, uh, and the way that he did that was specifically by visiting judgment on the whole land of Egypt, so in order for the people of Israel to not receive the judgment of death, they had to sacrifice a lamb and put its blood over the door and God would pass over those homes and his wrath would be visited on the lamb instead of on them. That's the Passover. So what is John doing here by specifically telling us that this is the day of preparation for the Passover? He's saying that the Passover lamb is being prepared right now. That the Passover lamb is about to be slaughtered. That this is the day of God's judgment being visited on the Lamb rather than on his people. He's saying Jesus is the Passover Lamb. But not only that, he says it's the sixth hour. That seems like a random detail. Why would he put that in there? Light and day is one of the strongest metaphors running throughout the book of John. And it almost always signifies sight and understanding. Light means you understand, you see, you understand. So the sixth hour is noon. It's high noon, right? And so John is basically telling us, listen, what I'm about to say is the truest thing I've said so far. Listen, because what I'm about to say means you're going to see and you're going to understand. And he says this, behold your king, behold your king. Jesus is the true king over and against Caesar. He is the real king. This text, though, is full of full of ironies. Um, it reminds me of that song. There is a I'm dating myself, but it reminds me of the song by Alanis Morissette. Ironic. Um, it's a song, <laughs> It's the most ironic thing about the whole song is there are no ironies in the song. Um, they're all coincidences. Uh, she says like rain on your wedding day. That's just a coincidence. The irony would be if uh, you scheduled your wedding in a time, in a place that's known for not raining, like Tucson, Arizona in February, and then it rained. That would be the irony, right? Um, But this text is full of a literary form of irony that does this. The characters in the text say something or do something with one intention, but us as the readers, we can see that it has a deeper and fuller meaning, a truer meaning. Okay, so I'll give you an example. Verse 2 the soldiers do what? They twist together a crown of thorns, they put it on Jesus' head, they dress him in a royal robe, and they present him and say, Behold your king. They intended that to mean mocking, to mock Jesus, to publicly ridicule him. But what we see as the reader is, this is Jesus' coronation day as king, right? And this is full of ironies because of um, the cross, it's full of ironies because of the cross. Let's keep reading. What happens? They took Jesus. Oh, sorry, I skipped one of the most important parts. Um, they they he says, "Behold your king," and they say, "The people." This is one of the most ironic parts of the whole thing. The people seeing Jesus as king. Finally, they've been waiting for their king. They've been waiting for their deliver, and they say, "Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him!" And Pilate says, "Should I kill your king? Should I crucify your king?" And they say, we don't have any king but Caesar. Now, here's the ironic part of this text. They're probably using this to turn up the political heat on on Pilate, right? They're trying to twist his arm into making a decision uh, for their ends, for their goals. So maybe they don't even mean it, because this is the people who's well-known under Roman rule for saying, we have no king but God. (laughs) But they say, we have no king but Caesar. But the irony is that we as the readers, when we look at this, we can see that this is actually the truth. They've made their decision. They've been presented with their king. God himself is standing in front of them as their king, and they say, we don't have a king. Caesar is our king. We've chosen the empire. So they take Jesus to be crucified, and he goes out bearing his own cross to the place called Golgotha, the place of skull. And there they crucified him with two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Now the interesting thing here in John's account, you might notice it's very sparse on details as it comes to Jesus' beating, his his, um, mocking, his uh, crucifixion, his flogging. Uh, It doesn't seem like that's the point that John is trying to make here. If you want more details about the barbarism, the the horrible, gruesome nature of the cross, history has tons of books that can tell you about the cross, about how terrible and savage it was as a form of execution. In fact, even the other other gospel accounts give us much more detail as to what this execution looked like. But what we need to know is what the cross means as a symbol. What does it mean as a symbolic gesture, right? Right? N.T. Wright says this. If you can pull it up on the screen for me here. Crucifixion was a powerful symbol throughout the Roman world. It was not just a means of liquidating undesirables. It did so with maximum degradation and humiliation. It's public, and the people who are, who are crucified were often crucified naked. Think like the corner of Campbell and Grant, that big vacant lot, just standing there in the public, hanging Naked. Maximum degradation and humiliation. It said loud and clear, we are in charge here. You are our property. We can do what we like with you. It insisted coldly and brutally on the absolute sovereignty of Rome and of Caesar. So here's Jesus hanging on the symbol of Caesar's absolute sovereignty— a symbol that in every way should scream out, Caesar is king. Caesar is king. Your resistance is futile, right? But John records for us what Pilate does in great detail. Pilate, verse 19, wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. But Pilate finally, the wishy-washy Pilate who can't make a decision through this whole thing, he finally takes a stand, and he says, what I've written, I've written. What I've written will stand For all time, as a public truth, for all to see, on the symbol of Roman oppression, on the symbol of Roman sovereignty, on the symbol of Caesar is king, is written the words, Jesus is king. He finally makes a decision. And the interesting thing is he doesn't just write it in Hebrew for the Jews to see, does he? He writes it in three languages. He writes it in Hebrew Aramaic, which would be the the language of religious power. He writes it in Latin, the Roman language, the language of military might. And he writes it in Greek, the cultural and economic language of the region. In effect, he's not just making the claim that Jesus is king over and against Caesar's sovereignty. He's saying Jesus is not just king of the Jews and of a religious minority. He's saying Jesus is king of this whole empire. Jesus is king of the nations. He's the king of military might. He's the king of economics. He's the king of culture. Jesus is the king. He finally takes a stand. But it's too late. Jesus is dying. And we see in this last part of the text, in verses 23 through 27, uh, look with me, that he has one more decision to make here. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to see whose it shall be. And then John tells us, This was to fulfill the scripture that says, They divided my garments among them, and from my clothing they cast lots. So this is an interesting text to me. I, I really tried to figure out why this attention to detail on the seamless uh, tunic. Like, what is that about? Doesn't seem like that's there in the other gospel accounts. He, he's really harping on something here. And the commentators are split. I'll just tell you, I, the commentators are split. Uh, some say that the word in Greek here is kaiton, which means the same thing as the, the, the robes of the high priest. So Jesus is not only the king, but he's also the high priest. Maybe that's it. Um, others say that the, the seamless tunic is like Uh, It's the closest garment to him. It's his underwear. And so it's kind of like what's nearest to him, like his people on the outside are divided, but nearest to him, they're united. I don't know. I'll be honest. But if we just do a surface reading of this and we just look at this, we can see the ways of Caesar and his empire at work, right? Because here's a man who's literally just been murdered. He's hanging on the cross. And the people who did the murdering are doing what? They're splitting up his stuff, It's the spoils of war, right? The the rhythm of Rome is get more, get ahead, acquire new stuff. Get more, get ahead, acquire new stuff. Get more, get ahead, acquire new stuff. This is the pattern that they live in. And they're literally standing by a dying dude splitting up his stuff because they want more stuff. Now, I don't know why this happens, But sometimes, when I'm just sitting and I'm looking at my phone, I pull up my bank account app. You ever do this? (laughs) You check your bank account. Oh, good, there's still money there. Sometimes I find my mind wandering when we're watching a show or something, and I'm like, I know that these commercials are trying to trick me. I know they're trying to trick me, but I really want that thing they're selling. Right? I know that I can make healthier and better food at home, but That ad for that restaurant just looks amazing. I drive past El Charo and I think, ooh, I gotta stop there sometime, right? There is a rhythm to the empire we live in. There is a rhythm and a rhyme to the empire of America, to the empire of consumerism. And it sounds real familiar to the empire of Rome. Get more, get ahead. Acquire new stuff. Do you recognize that rhythm in your heart? Do you recognize that rhythm when your mind is at rest? Do you recognize that rhythm when you're scrolling through your phone or your Instagram feed? Get more. Get ahead. Acquire new stuff. And I can't help but wonder what would be different if we followed the kingdom of Jesus rather than the kingdom of Caesar. Read with me what happens while the soldiers are splitting up Jesus' stuff. It says in verse 25, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, his auntie. I don't know why it doesn't just say that, his auntie. Mary, the wife of Clopas, so many Marys, and Mary Magdalene. All the Marys are here standing at the cross, right? And here's the interesting dynamic, the paradigm that is completely different from the paradigm of the soldiers. When Jesus, dying, mind you, dying, saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own. See, the decision that Pilate is faced with, the decision that the Roman soldiers are faced with, the decision that you and I are faced with, is do we acquire new stuff or do we acquire a new family? That's the the dynamic that Jesus is setting up. The paradigm that he's setting up is not more stuff, but more family. And I think that this is a beautiful promise, folks, for those who are lonely. I know we're here. I know we're here. This is a beautiful promise for those of you who are single and celibate. This is a beautiful promise for those of you who have tried and tried to have kids and they just haven't come. This is a beautiful promise for the orphan and for the widow. Because standing by the foot of the cross, not united in biological blood, but united in redemptive blood, Jesus distributes the gifts of a new family to his people. Look around. Go ahead. Look around. Behold your family. This is your family. This is the gift of Jesus in your life. We're united at the foot of the cross together in his blood. Behold, he didn't ask. This wasn't a request. He didn't say try to get in your neighbor's life here. He didn't say try to go deeper in your small group. Behold, this is your family, united in his blood. And I cannot help but wonder, folks, that what would be different if instead of spending my time scrolling through my assets, I spent time taking stock of my friendships? I can't help but wonder what would be different if instead of chasing deeper pockets here, we chased deeper love for one another. I don't think we'd struggle in the same ways with loneliness. We, for sure, some, but not in the same way. Jesus is giving the gift. He's meeting the needs of his people by giving them a new family. Now, I told you the whole thing is full of ironies, and I want to close with the biggest irony of all. See, the text, the whole passage, is about how the Jewish religious leaders thought that by killing Jesus, they were saving their nation. By killing Jesus, they're saving their nation. Pilate thought that by killing Jesus, he was going to save himself. The soldiers thought that by killing Jesus, they'd get his gifts. But Jesus, the true, the better king, the one whose name stands as a public declaration for all time, not of Caesar's authority, not of his sovereignty, but of God's sovereignty, Jesus laid down his life willingly to save the nation of Israel. Jesus laid down his life willingly to save individuals like you and me and Pilate. And Jesus laid down his life willingly to distribute the gifts, not of more stuff, but of a new family. He chose the way not of self-preservation, not of the way of get more, get ahead. He chose the way of give myself away for a new family. And the question that I think confronts us now is which king are you loyal to? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are lifted high, enthroned. You are enthroned on your cross, lifted for all to see, a public truth that will stand for all time. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, said in every language, one day we are going to hear that refrain In languages other than Aramaic and Greek. We're going to hear it in the tongue of every tribe and every people. We long for that day. Jesus, we ask that now, here, you would help us to see, to identify where our allegiances are mixed at best, where at worst we're giving away our loyalty to an empire that is not your kingdom. Jesus, free us from that so that we can enjoy the gifts of a new family, a new kingdom in a different way. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.